Good morning. I'd invite you to open your Bibles. Would you find your Bible and turn to the book of Colossians? And we'll continue in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll start reading today in verse 21. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Our passage today is verse 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As we have been working our way through the book of Colossians, we have seen that Paul is writing this letter with the purposes of encouraging and building up the saints and confronting and correcting false teaching that is threatening the early church. We will see that the latter part of his letter, in the latter part of his letter, he then applies these truths to direct the saints to understand and live out their lives in keeping with the truth. In the immediate pretext to the verses we'll examine today, and in the sermons of the last three Sundays, the person and work of Christ have been the focus. By reading his letter in this way, by writing his letter in this way, I believe Paul is first restating and reaffirming the truth before he confronts the false teaching. Turn with me to verse 9, and we will read these passages that set out the immediate pretext for today's verses. Colossians 1, 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we lead to today's message. The first two words of our passage are, and you. To this point, Paul has essentially been preaching the gospel and proclaiming the majesty and kindness of Christ. 
Now Paul turns his attention from Christology, that is, the explaining of who Christ is, to anthropology, that is, explaining who man is, who we are. Todd Friel, an evangelist whom I respect and have learned much from, often concludes his gospel appeal with the plea that his hearers think about their sin and think about his goodness. Apologist Walter Martin, who is the author of The Kingdom of the Cults, and other apologists I have read say that false religion can be identified by two essential errors they make. One, they have a low view of who Christ is. And secondly, they have too high a view of man. John Piper described excellent preaching as, and I'm paraphrasing here, he described excellent, excellent preaching as preaching that reveals God to be so high and man so fallen that the separation between the two, between, between them, is impossible for man to repair on his own and requires the supernatural work of Christ. This is what I believe Paul is laboring to do in the section of Colossians we study today. Paul has taught us to this, this point in the letter who Christ is and what he has done. Now he puts that in contrast to who man is and who we were. And so we come to the next words of our passage, who we once were. Paul, in these words, lets us know that he is describing our position and state prior to God, uh, before and prior to us receiving from God the gospel of grace, prior to being spiritually reborn. We will see that this is the condition of every person who is an unbeliever. The next words in our passage are alienated and hostile in mind. In scripture, one who is alienated from God is set apart, estranged from God, cut off, and separated for judgment. Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 12 explain this reality. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made with the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant's promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. An alien is a foreigner, a person whose citizenship and loyalty belong to a different kingdom. This is what Paul was referring to when he told his readers in verse 13 of this uh, chapter, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Unbelievers are described here as estranged foreigners, members of and loyal to the kingdom of darkness. The Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, the Apostle John in chapter 8, verse 44 of his gospel puts it this way, and he puts it plainly. You belong to your father, the devil. Unbelievers do not enjoy the rights of citizenship in the kingdom of light, that being the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. Our text continues with these words, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
This describes our state before God showed us his mercy and the state of every unbeliever. Hostile means belonging to the enemy, unfriendly, antagonistic, and in opposition, and doing evil deeds. Our hostile minds were demonstrated in our works. So I, I just ask you to pause here and think this over. Have we overstated what Paul says in these very few words? Does the rest of the Bible paint such a dark picture of the depravity of man? Let's spend a few minutes surveying scripture to see if we're on solid ground before we move on. Romans 3.23 tells us this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we were created in His image. That is, we were intended to display His glory, but we have failed to do that, and have by our sin dishonored Him, the Creator, our Creator, the preeminent, glorious One. The depravity of man is an essential doctrine that I maintain is underrepresented in the preaching of many popular preachers and seldom taught in many churches. This truth is outside the experience of many long-time professing Christians who attend those churches. When you preach this truth, it often raises a protest. And interestingly, it is not unbelievers that protest the loudest but those that profess to be Christians. It is very common in our culture for people to adamantly defend their self-righteousness and the essential goodness of man. These professing Christians will often say something like this. Well, that's just Paul speaking. And he's so harsh. He doesn't seem Christ-like. Well, I ask you, is that true? Let's hear what did Jesus say about man? Mark chapter 7, verses 20, and 20 to 23 begins this way. And he said, that's Jesus, and what follows are his words. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. That's a description of our hostile minds. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And, and this is the assumption, uh, sorry, and this is a description of our evil deeds. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. This is Jesus describing man. It is clear from God's own words which of course all of scripture is, including the writings of Paul, it's clear that unregenerate man is sinful to the core. In Psalm 51.5, David confesses what is true of all men. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are sinful from birth. What unbelievers, when unbelievers hear the truth of their sinful state, they often protest, I'm not perfect, but God knows my heart. Well, that is certainly true. God is omniscient, and he knows all things. This is what God knows about our hearts. 
In Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 we hear this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In 2 Peter, the second chapter, we have this written uh, by Peter. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, in greed, accursed children. The fact that God knows our hearts is true, and that is not a comforting thought. That's very bad news. The lost are deceived by their hearts, by their flesh, and don't understand how desperate their situation is until we bring the truth of Scripture to them. A common mantra in our culture is that 99.9% .9 of people of all religions and beliefs are good people. Well, this is what the Bible teaches in Ecclesiastes 7.20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good, who never sins. Galatians chapter 5 says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, you keep, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. That is the description of the hostility and alienation Paul is talking about in verse 21. And you know, this has been true of man ever since the first sin in the fall of man. In Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw the wickedness of man and was the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, were only evil continually. And this depravity of man is still uh, is still true. The nature and it is still the nature of man after God's judgment and the flood, and after Christ's death and resurrection. This is from the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that means everyone, that, those are my words, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole, whole world may be held accountable to God. The Apostle John in chapter 3 of his, of his gospel says this, and he affirms the truth we're, we've been putting forth today. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because of their because their works were evil. Unbelievers are again described in Titus. Titus 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, 
but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And so I'd like to uh, just explore a question for you. Why preach this bad news? Doesn't it offend people and turn them away from the church? I would answer this objection in a few different ways. Firstly, I would say we the church have been entrusted and commanded to preach the word, all of it, always. We don't have the right to alter God's word and selectively preach what we want to preach or what our audience wants to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Brothers and sisters, this is the definition of rightly dividing God's word. Secondly, it's important to preach about the fallen nature of man because understanding our sin causes us to abandon our hope in our non-existent self-righteousness, to realize that we are not okay with God, but in danger of His wrath. This realization is a powerful force to cause believers to turn from sin and self and to flee to our only hope and our Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. Thirdly, faithful preachers of Christ as we, as we strive to be Never preach the bad news without offering the good news of Christ's offer of forgiveness to any who will humble themselves and call on him for forgiveness. Another reason for preaching of the desperate condition of man without Christ is encourage you Christians to be sharing the gospel with people you meet. Because churchgoers who belong to churches in which this depravity of man is seldom taught will often think like this. I know people who are not Christians that live very good lives, better lives than many Christians. Surely God sees their good works, and these good works will outweigh their little mistakes. This type of thinking, which is very prevalent in the church today, can have the effect of causing Christians to stop sharing the gospel. After all, if non-Christians will be accepted by God, why make waves and have those awkward gospel conversations? Well, let's see if that is consistent with what the Bible says. And I just, I have a, a note that I'll add to this. I am hearing more and more, some Christians today go as far as to claim that it is hateful and abusive to, sell, to tell a person believing another religion that they are wrong. Well, let's look at what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And what does the Bible say about the value of those good works to outweigh our little mistakes? Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says this. 
We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Take us away. According to the Bible, According to the Bible, are your unbelieving friends and neighbors really good and secure in God's favor? Let's read Romans 8, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Brothers and sisters, let this awful truth of the hopeless state of our unbelieving friends and neighbors cause you to boldly proclaim the gospel every chance you get. Christ, in Matthew 9, 36, said this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Let us share Christ's compassion for the lost and preach his gospel to our friends and neighbors. Another reason to preach and for every believer to understand the depths of depravity of man is that as long as we are in this flesh, a remnant of that fallen nature is very much present and active in us. Believers must be on guard against this ongoing, powerful, and deceptive influence on us. We must continually look to Christ and His Word as our standard of truth. We must not lean on our own understanding. And finally, the reason we must preach the true depraved nature of man is to encourage heartfelt worship among the saints. For believers, preaching the truth of who we were before God saved us should cause us to respond in deep gratitude and worship Him more. This truth is revealed in the following teaching by Christ from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them did he love more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I have entered your house. And you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with anointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And now we pick up in our text at verse 22, and the focus changes. The focus now returns to Christ. And verse 22 begins with these wonderful words. 
Now Paul has preached the bad news and he shares the good news. He has now reconciled. The object of this phrase is not all mankind, but the Colossian believers. Believers who have now been reconciled. The word has in our phrase makes it clear that this reconciliation happened in the past. The word now means that this reconciled position of believers is a present reality. The word reconciled means the process by which God and men are brought together. As we have seen, God and man are alienated from one another because of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. Because of our sin, we owe a debt to God. We owed him we owed him as our righteous creator honor and worship and perfect obedience, but we have fallen short. This is the nature of our debt. This is a debt that we can never repay with our tainted good works. And the Bible plainly tells us that the penalty of sin is death and separation from the love of God and eternal punishment. But Christ has reconciled sinners who believe the gospel. Our text continues, in his body, by his death. Here, here Paul explains this reconciliation, the good news of how God reconciled us to Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, voluntarily left heaven and took on flesh, becoming a man. He was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born without sin and lived on this earth like you and I, suffering the temptations that we suffer. And yet he lived a perfect life in imperfect obedience to God, perfectly glorifying him. Hebrews 1 tells us that he was the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. John 1 tells us that he made God known. He did perfectly what we were created to do and failed to do. Then Christ, in his body and by his death, gave his perfect sinless life voluntarily as a sacrifice, the only sacrifice sufficient and acceptable to God to pay the penalty of sin for all who believe. This is the reconciliation of Christ. And then Christ rose from the dead, and he went to heaven where he now reigns, at the right hand of the Father, from where he will return, at a day only God knows, to gather his church to eternal life and reward with him, and to punish unbelievers for their sinful, for their sin, and to suffer eternally. Our text continues now. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The purpose of Christ's life and death are explained here. Christ's ministry was first to glorify God by saving his chosen people that God had entrusted to him. In his ministry, Christ, by dying for us while we were yet sinners, God himself displayed his compassion and mercy and love. When Christ went to his death, he took our sin and paid the penalty for it. And he exchanged that sin for the gift of his righteousness that he gives to all believers, so that when we stand before God, as all men will, on the day of judgment, instead of God seeing our sin and casting us away to eternal judgment, God now, because of Christ's work for believers who are in Christ, 
God, when we stand before him, will see us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, holy, blameless, and above reproach. God will embrace us as his children, fit to live in his presence forever. And so our question is, what should our response to Paul's teaching in this passage be? Paul, when he wrote to the Colossian church, was aware that there were often, are, that there were often, and are often today, in our church, unbelievers among the believers in the church, the tares among the wheat. And so there is an application of this truth for both believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers are called to realize that they are guilty of great sin and to realize how great their sin debt is. Unbelievers are called to abandon their hope in their self-righteousness. Unbelievers are called to repent and turn from self and sin, to confess their sin in humility to God and to ask forgiveness and to believe in Christ's finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. For believers, this truth is intended to remind you of His great mercy and for you to respond in great gratitude. The knowledge of our sin nature should spur us on to be on guard, to continue living lives of ongoing repentance. This truth should remind us not to return to our evil deeds and spur us to strive for righteousness so as to walk worthy in a, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The truth of man's hopeless condition without reconciliation to God, available only through faith in Christ, must spur us on to share the gospel at every opportunity. As the book of Colossians explains, the excellence of Christ and the true nature of man Believers are encouraged to look to Christ and to worship Him in gratitude and to rest and hope in the sure reconciliation He has now provided for us. Let's pray. Lord God, as You have shown us today the truth of the depths of our depravity and our hopeless condition apart from Christ, Cause us, Lord, to erupt in heartfelt worship and praise. Cause us to daily turn from sin and self and to look to you and your word in faith. Let our thankfulness for your mercy and grace toward us cause us to proclaim your gospel everywhere to the glory of your holy name. Amen.